God, thank you for loving us so much. Lord God, we ask that this love would saturate our hearts, that it would transform our minds, our thinking, that we would be led to truly abide in that love, and that that would change absolutely everything. Lord, please speak to us this morning through the power of your word, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. It was after lunch this past week when we began to notice something about my girls. I don't remember which one it was, but one of them had a toy and the other one wanted it, and and they began to to melt down about it. You parents have experienced this before, but it, it just it was like it kept getting worse, and it, and it was so irrational that we would get a, another thing for, for the other sister, and, and they would have everything conceivably good, and, and yet they were just crying and crying and crying and crying. And suddenly I said, what time is it anyway? We looked at our watch. It's 2 o'clock. Oh, we said, you girls need a nap. They said, no, nap. We don't need a nap. We don't need a nap. We said, yeah, you really, really need a nap. This is really important that you have a nap. And, and it's incredible. Have you noticed what happens to a child? I mean, they are energizer bunnies until that time hits. And so we take them and we put them back in their crib. They knock out for an hour and a half to two hours. And suddenly they wake up and Livy's bouncy. <laughs> and they're ready to run for another four hours straight. And they won't stop, literally. They're, they have so much energy playing with this, pulling with that. This constantly going until we're ready for a nap. You know, I want you to notice something that in Revelation chapter 14, it gives us the picture that Babylon needs some sleep. They need a little bit of rest. Check this out. Revelation chapter 14. We've been looking at the three angels' messages. We've looked at the everlasting gospel that's revealed so clearly in the first angels' message, but really is the context of the entire three angels' messages. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8, we've been reading about this second angel that follows, that, that is, is a result of the, the good news about who Jesus is. And, and by the way, it's good news, not good advice. All right, you're getting really good at this, right? It's good news about what he has accomplished, not about what you are supposed to do. It's about what Jesus has already done for you. And, and so then this angel follows and it says Babylon is fallen, is fallen. This means, hey, while the good news is that good, it's going to eventually bring the downfall of every system of selfishness and hatred of self-exaltation on this planet. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And last week we looked at part of that wine of the wrath of her fornication, how Nebuchadnezzar himself said that everybody needed to worship him or burn And when the three Hebrews stood up and went into the fiery furnace afterwards, he said, okay, now I know who the true God is, so worship the true God or you're going to burn. You ever heard that today? That type of theology, that idea is Babylonic in nature. It, It leads us to either slavish fear or to deny the existence or to hate this God. And if you missed last week, uh, you can catch it on our YouTube channel. But then notice what the end result is for this system of oppression, of religious oppression. Last week we saw, where is this 
Babylon, what does she end up doing? It's represented in Revelation 17 as a harlot. And what is she riding on? She's riding on a beast, which represented kingdoms. So the church begins to, because they've lost power, begins to always push for secular enactments of religious ideas. And we saw that while, yes, we long for America to be godly again, that to push for a political method for making America godly again is not the answer. In fact, it is Antichrist. So then, look at what ends up happening with this system of Babylon. We're going to skip through and we're going to catch on to the end of the third angel's message. We'll look at the third angel's message in more detail, but look at what happens to Babylon. It says, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. You see, Babylon has a rest problem. Babylon is not getting enough rest. And this is a serious problem for toddlers and for any human being. But then it goes on to say, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In contrast to those who have no rest, are those who have the faith, the endurance, the faith of Jesus, and they're keeping the commandments. Now, let's look over at this harlot again in Revelation chapter 17. You know, it's funny because I passed out those books to you, uh, Understanding Daniel and Revelation by Mark Finley. And if you've been looking at them, they have these beautiful pictures in them. Well, my girls love to look at pictures in books. And so they'll, they'll come and they'll grab this book when they come to daddy's office, which happens to be our bedroom. And they come to our bedroom and, and they come by my chair and there they are. They're, they pick up the book and they begin to look through at all the different pictures. And, and they're always asking for, show the girl, girl, girl. And you know what girl they're talking about? It's a Revelation 17 girl. She's sitting on a seven-headed leopard with horns. I'm like, ah, yeah, how about we look at the one of Jesus coming back where he's, or the people in heaven, no, 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 want a fine girl, want a fine girl. I said, she's made some really bad, we need to pray for her because she's made some really bad choices. Let's pray for her. So they, they find her and we pray for her quite a, quite a bit. So don't worry, Babylon's being prayed for in our household. So this, this, this harlot, she comes and she's sitting on many waters. We saw it represents, she's a popular uh, um, church movement and we saw that the, Woman in Bible prophecy represents God's people, but here, instead of being a faithful bride, it's the one that's turned away from God, that's broken his heart, that's gone after other lovers, other dependences, that that sought another method of salvation beside Christ alone. But look at specifically how she is described, what she's wearing. Verse 4 says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So, so what is she wearing? What is she, what, what's, the, what's the colors of the clothing that she's wearing? Scarlet and purple, or red and purple. Does this ring any bells for you? It, it's pretty fascinating that when you read through Exodus, so Moses, they're out there in the wilderness, and he begins to ask the people, hey, so I want you to bring an offering so that we can build this this temple that's going to represent who God is so that that everybody can know that God's presence is with us. And when he builds that sanctuary, he has them bring thread of 
blue and purple and scarlet. And, and then you get down to Exodus chapter 39 and verse 1, and he's making specifically the garments for the high priest. And it says this in Exodus 39 verse 1, it says, Of the blue, purple, and scarlet thread, they made garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place and made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the priest himself wore clothes that were blue and purple and scarlet. As well as precious stones. The ephod was like, had all this gold. It had all these precious stones. He had precious stones on either shoulder. And this ephod, it, it, it had blue strings that was attaching it to him. He had also a blue robe uh, that was underneath a, a part of the, the ephod. He had this, uh, this insignia on, 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 on his turban on the top of on his head that said, Holiness to the Lord. And it was attached with blue string. Blue and purple and scarlet. Read through Exodus sometimes and just look for that because again and again, these are the colors of the sanctuary along with all of the precious metals. Now, what was the colors that the harlot was wearing? What were they? Purple and scarlet. Something's missing here with a religious identity with it with it with the church something is missing so what exactly does does blue represent is there any clarity to that when it talks about uh, the clothing back in 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 the torah well if you go to to numbers chapter 15 this is really important look at numbers chapter 15 and you might wonder well if we're talking about revelation why are we talking about Gen- uh, exodus why are we talking about numbers well all of the the Bible books meet and end in Revelation. So they, it really is with a background of all of this beautiful uh, Old Testament sim- symbolism. But Numbers chapter 15, catch this. Verse 37, it says, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. So all of them were to have... Uh, a, a blue thread hanging on the corner of their garments in, woven into a tassel. Kind of interesting, huh? Is that just random? Why were they doing this? What, what was the purpose of this? Notice what it goes on to explain why. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. What was the purpose of the blue in the tassel? It was to remind them of the commandments, the promises, the ten, the, the promises that God had given of what he was going to do in their life so that they would live out the law in their lives. And then it goes on to say this, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. You need to make sure you've got blue in the tassel on your robe in order to not become seduced by the harlot tree that is in your own heart. You see, the, the blue was significant because it kept them from going after other lovers for other dependents, uh, other, other gods besides Yahweh. The blue was of vital importance because it represented the love of God as revealed in the commandments. You know, Jesus summarized the commandments. It's love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on this hangs all the law and the prophets. This is what it all boils down to. Everything else is commentary. Anything contrary to this is heresy. Does that make make sense? 
anything that, that, that is in addition to that is just commentary on loving God supremely and loving your neighbor as yourself. Anything contrary to this is heresy. Then it goes on to say, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now you remember every time that the the commandments are given, first it says, hey, you are my precious treasure, my son. I brought you out of slavery. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out. And here's this promises, these promises of freedom that I want to do in your life. And Babylon's missing that. They're missing the reality of what God wants to accomplish. And this makes sense because we saw two weeks ago that Babylon represents self-exaltation. When they were there on the the plain uh, and they built that tower ascending to, to save themselves from the next flood that came and to make a great name for themselves. And that's the origin of the name Babylon. And then you have Nebuchadnezzar standing on his wall saying, is this not great Babylon which I have made? Every bit of Babylon is, is the, the representation of Babylon is self-exaltation, seeking to save ourselves, seeking. And we saw that that leads to tearing other people down around us. It leads to confusion, just like the word Babylon means. But, but here you have the picture that, that Babylon is lacking in blue in her garment. She's representing God, and yet she's lacking in selfless, self-sacrificing love as revealed in the commandments. And, and the color blue, it, it kind of makes some sense why, why this was chosen. If you were to go to uh, Exodus chapter 24, God calls 70 elders, and they come up on Mount Sinai. And as they come up on Mount Sinai, they see a vision of God. And as they see this vision of God, underneath his throne is this clear as crystal. In fact, I'll read the description of, of what it was like under, under God's throne. It says this, Verse, 20, verse 10 of Exodus 24 says, And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. What color is sapphire? And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. It, it was as clear as the sky, this beautiful blue color. I was kind of hoping that it would be a sunny day today so that we could look at the blue sky and say, look at that. This is here to remind us. But it reminds me of when I moved out here from Pennsylvania. I was about 10 years old and moved out here and moved out here in the summer to live near Fresno up in the foothills above Fresno. As a little kid, my whole perspective on life, I, I was always a happy child, but coming to California, I was that much happier each and every day as I woke up and I looked outside and said, another sunny day. There's not a cloud in the sky. I can play outside all day long. There's no rain coming. You see, in Pennsylvania, it'll rain for weeks on end. It looks like this for, for it feels like months on end. Of course, their hills are really green all, all during the year, but we won't go there. But there's something that begins to happen when you have clouds in your life. When, when there's something obscuring the reality of who God is. I believe that just like those building the Tower of Babel, they missed the fact that there was this covenant sign of the rainbow. Oftentimes I go through my day, and even though I live in sunny California, I miss the reality of what 
this beautiful blue sky represents. This beautiful blue sky that we are blessed with here in California reminds me day in and day out of an infinite God of love. You see, the law of God is about what God has done and what he will do, what he promises to do in your life, far more than about what he's asking you to do. And we'll look at that here in a little bit more detail. But you remember how Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was in the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins to describe how the law of God, he said, it's not going to pass away. He said, the heavens and the earth are going to pass away before one jot or one tittle of the law will be done away with. The, the law is as enduring as the sky and the earth. It is as, as important as all of that. Ezekiel chapter 1, the throne of God itself, when it's revealed to Ezekiel, it looks like a sapphire stone. You see, God wants us to understand that, that blue is this representation that everything God does is birthed out of his love for you and for all of creation. That's his modus operandi. When he does something, it's based out of selfless love. And nothing else will we find in the actions of God except for selfless love. But then you notice in that same sermon on, on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Further on in in chapter 7, towards the end of the sermon, one of the last stories that he tells, he tells about what's going to take place when he comes back. And he begins to give us this idea that, that not everybody who says, yeah, celebrate Jesus, worship Jesus, follow Jesus, not everybody who's saying that actually has a true picture of this amazing character of God. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Ah, that starts to make me really nervous because right now this is what they would consider as prophesying, to, to be sharing with you what, what God has said, what the word of God is all about. Many people are going to be like, hey, hang on, I'm a pastor. I've been preaching about you, Jesus. Ah, whoa, whoa. Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I preach a lot of sermons in the parking lot at Templeton? Then it goes on to say, cast out demons in your name? Wow. You know, I can point to a time or two in my life where I've seen that happen, but I mean, this is somebody who's who's really got an experience with God, if anybody does, right? And done many wonders in your name. Now, at that point, I'm not sure anymore exactly that, that I even could be saying that to Jesus. Then it goes on to say this in verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What? How, how, how is this? I don't understand what this, this even looks like because if anybody was fulfilling the law, wouldn't it be those who are preaching about Jesus, who are teaching about Jesus, who have this religiosity in the way that they go about their lives? In fact, back in chapter 5, uh, after talking about how the law will not be done away with and telling that, hey, if you teach anybody to break the law, if you break the law yourself, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
Verse 20 says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, he's not being against the law, obviously. He's saying, hey, you need to be even more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. How many laws did the scribes and Pharisees believe were important to follow? Hundreds, right? They had at least 613 from the Torah that that these were absolutely essential for you to follow for your salvation. 613. And and here Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, then then you're not even entering the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to unpack what he means. Because he says, hey, if you have coldness towards, towards anybody, if you have anger towards anybody, you've already committed murder in your heart. If you lust after a woman, you just look at her and say, wow, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. It goes on to talk about loving your enemy, doing good to those who persecute you, turning the other cheek, walking a second mile, all of these things. Clearly, he's wanting for us to live this incredible life. And yet in the end, you find that there are people who think that they've been doing this, who he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now here's the thing about the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus goes on in Matthew 23 to tell them, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're following all of these things. You're going through these motions. But the reality is that inwardly, you are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, they had an outward conformance to what appeared to be right, what they knew was right. But Jesus, I have good news for you this morning. Jesus isn't interested in you gritting your teeth in order to make sure that you obey all of the laws. It's far better than that. The good news is actually good news, not good advice. Jesus wants to actually change our hearts so that we delight to do his will. He wants to write his law on our hearts. And that's why there's this beautiful picture that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 11. And it's crucial for us to grasp this concept of the lawless one. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it tells us that, hey, there is the man of sin who's going to come at the end, and and there's going to be a falling away within the church. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And then in this falling away, the lawless one, he's going to exalt himself above everything that is called God and exalt himself in the very temple of God, and he's going to cause you to worship God. The character, he's going to confuse your understanding of who God is. So that you think that you're worshiping God, but in reality, you're worshiping falsehood. And we see this happening in the dark ages. You see this happening with a church that was supposedly representing Jesus, but that just like the woman rides the beast in Revelation 17, grabs a hold of the reins of power and begins to burn heretics, begins to tell people, hey, if you put enough money into this, this uh, casket, you put, you put enough coins in here, then your relative's going to get out of purgatory. Right now, God's torturing them, but hey, you might be able to get them out sooner into heaven. Begin to tell people that, that if you go through these motions, and like Martin Luther, who was just whipping himself as a monk, if you do enough penance, you can get God to like you. You can get God's favor. 
But I want to tell you something a little solemn this morning, but it's also good news. You cannot earn God's favor. Did you know that? You cannot earn God's favor. You know why? Because you already have it. You already have God's favor. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Romans chapter 5, he says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is demonstrated for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You already have his favor. You can never earn it. And that's why Jesus, you imagine that he's there in the temple and as he sees these people who are burdened down with all that the scribes and the Pharisees have told them that they have to do and always they're telling them that's not enough and they're whipping them and pushing them down and saying, you're just not going to make it. You're not good enough. They're burdened in their souls. And in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, Jesus says this, Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. Have you felt like you've been working really hard? (laughs) Like you're heavy laden? I'm not just talking about working 70, 80 hour weeks. Talking about in your soul. Have you felt like, man, I just don't measure up. I'm just not enough. I, I, I just, I feel this guilt. I feel this weight in my life. Jesus says, come to me. All you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he's telling this to Sabbath keepers. He's telling this to those who don't eat unclean meat. He's telling this to those who are very rigorous about those 613 laws of the Torah. And he says, look, you don't realize it. What you need is to come to me, to join me. It's about a relationship. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. What's a yoke for? To pull? What, what does a yoke do? It, it, was, it was what they would use for their plow, right? In order to have Two ox power, right? Instead of two horsepower, you have two ox power. You put the two oxen and you put the, the, the yoke between them and it, it keeps them together in order to pull the weight. He says, yoke up with me. There's a lot of other yokes that we can have in our life. We can be yoked to our, our, our work. We can be yoked to our works. We can be yoked to, to trying to please this person or that person or to be trying to please God. He says, yoke up with me. Yoke up with me. Now, obviously, a yoke indicates that that Jesus wants for us to be active. He wants for us to be doing something. He wants for us to be plowing the field. He wants for, for things to be taking place. A yoke indicates service is taking place. Yoke up with me, he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The omnipotent God of the universe says, I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. I'm humble. I'm meek. This is who I am. Learn this from me and your life is going to get a whole lot better. And you will find rest for your souls. That word for soul is the word for psyche. Your, your, your emotional state of being. You're going to find rest on a level that you so desperately 
need. Then he goes on to say, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is that true? Is it when you come to Jesus, is it easy? Is it light? That's really what it's designed to be. I love how it describes it in the book, Faith and Works. It says this, we can do nothing, absolutely nothing. How much is that? Okay, just making sure. Nothing, absolutely nothing to commend ourselves to divine favor because you already have it. We must not trust at all to ourselves or to our good works. But when, as erring sinful beings, we come to Christ, we may find rest in his love. As my Father has loved me, I have loved you. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Rest in that love. God will accept everyone that comes to him, trusting wholly in the merits of a crucified Savior. And then love springs up in the heart. It just begins to overflow. It becomes the the outflow of a relationship of acceptance of his love. There may be no ecstasy of feeling, but there is an abiding, peaceful trust. Every burden is light, for the yoke which Christ imposes is easy. Duty becomes delight, and sacrifice a pleasure. Hang on, have you ever heard those two words together? Duty and delight? Sacrifice and pleasure? It says, hey, you're going to be fulfilling duty. You're going to be sacrificing. And it's going to be delightful and it's going to be pleasurable. And that is what Jesus has called us to. To a relationship of coming to Jesus in such a way that we're delighted to do the duties that he's given to us. We are filled with pleasure because we have become one with Christ. We're in this friendship with a God who loves us more than his own existence. The path that before seemed shrouded in darkness became bright with the bright beams of the sun of righteousness. Have you ever experienced it before? Hopefully not. I remember one, one day when it was a small thing that began to get me really down. And I'm talking to Leah, and as we're talking about it, I was really frustrated about these different things. And, and she's just watching me. You know how a wife can just like look straight at your soul? And she just sees what's going on. You know what she said to me? You need to take a nap. <laughs> you need some sleep. <laughs> I didn't like to hear that. But I'll tell you that when I went and I slept, it transformed my perspective on life. Suddenly the world looked different. And friends, if you are feeling burdened in your soul, could it be that what you need first is rest? We don't like to think this way. We like to think that's too easy. You can't tell me that that God's favor is already mine because that's dangerous. Then it might lead to lawlessness. It's the opposite of that. When you know that the God of the universe already loves you, when you know that he has accepted you in the beloved, when you rest, you get energy. Is this true? We have some medical professionals here, some in medical school. Like, is it true? If I go to sleep, do I wake up with more energy? I, I watch it with Livy. She's literally jumping in her crib after a nap. She sleeps so much. I need to learn to sleep more. But what I really need to learn is to rest in the love of God. To, to dwell upon that, to abide in that, to realize the God of the universe humbled himself, became a baby, and walked this perfect life. He actually fulfilled the law perfectly for me. And then he said, it is finished on the cross completely, and I am accepted in the beloved. And as I let that soak in, 
It's like sitting under a blue, sunshiny sky. My life begins to overflow in love. I come alive in Christ. There's transformative power in recognizing that we are invited to rest in what He has already accomplished for us. That's what at the very heart of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is all about. He created you. You had nothing to do with that. And He saved you. You also had nothing to do with that. It is finished in Christ. And you were invited each and every week to come to the seventh day and to say, ah, no longer am I trying to provide for my physical needs, but also I don't come to church in order to earn God's favor. I don't need to go through these motions to earn God's favor, but instead I'm entering into a relationship where I'm accepted and loved. And then I begin to overflow in my response to God. We love because he first loved us. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and they are not burdensome. First John promises to us. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And let me tell you, it is delightful. It is pleasurable. He is inviting you to one of the greatest things that we have only seen little glimmers of in the history of humanity. You remember what takes place after the cross. The disciples, when they realize that Jesus has raised and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, they get together and they get together in the upper room and they're praying and they're praying and they're praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They're praying and they're focused on Jesus. Jesus said, wait and then go when you have received power and take the gospel to the world. And as they're there waiting, I hope, you recognize that that what needs to take place is not to focus more on ourselves. This past week, I had the privilege of of completing another trip around the sun. And I was thinking about my previous year of, of traveling around the sun. And as I was thinking about this, I began to think about myself. And I began to think, am I closer to God? And, and I began to evaluate and parse out the details of my actions. And I began to get discouraged the more I think about me, the less excited I am about my walk with God. But then suddenly it hit me. But you know what? God has become far more beautiful to me over the past year. And, and God did this. And, and I remember, oh, and think about how he saw us through the pandemic. I mean, just look at the farm up there that he brought at just the right time. Look at how he's working with our school. And, and here is how beautiful God is. And suddenly I realized something. I need to focus on Jesus. Steps to Christ says it this way. It says the heart, after talking about Matthew 11, it says the heart that rests most fully upon Christ will be most earnest and active in labor for him. When you rest, you're going to have the most energy to be earnest and active for him. But then it says that Satan seeks to distract us by self, by focusing on ourselves. Anything that will prevent the union and communion of the soul with Christ. Then it goes on to say this, the pleasures of the world, life's cares and perplexities and sorrows, the faults of others, or your own faults and imperfections to any or all of these, he will seek to divert the mind. Then it goes on to say that many who are conscientious, they go out and they're worried about their imperfections. And she says, just rest your salvation, trust your salvation completely in God because he alone can accomplish it. Then she says this, talk and think of Jesus. Let self be lost in him. We talked about this at our Bible study last 
Wednesday. If you were to be a cashier at a, at a, a store and you were to uh, need to understand what a counterfeit $100 bill looked like, you know, maybe Benjamin Franklin's nose is longer or something, you know, you got to figure out what exactly a counterfeit $100 bill looks like. It wouldn't benefit you to go and to study out, well, well, there's this counterfeit bill and, and look at how they did it this way and there's this one and there's this one and because there's an infinite number of ways that a, a dollar bill could be counterfeited, a hundred dollar bill could be counterfeited and you could focus on all the evil that's out there. You can focus on every possible counterfeit and you can study that out and that's not going to help you in the end. But if you take the hundred dollar bill and you study every single detail on that $100 bill, and you get to know that $100 bill, you don't have to worry. No matter what counterfeit somebody brings you, no matter what it looks like, if it's not the love of God, you're going to recognize it. Just focus on Jesus. And when the counterfeits come, you'll say, no way. I don't want anything to do with that because my God is a God of self-sacrificing love. We've got to take time to get to know him. And that's what the disciples did as they bound together in the upper room. They focused on Jesus. Acts of the Apostles says they saw Jesus only. And this was the source of their power. But look at what it ends up looking like as they focus in on Jesus. As they take that time with Jesus. In Acts chapter 2. You remember what happened after the Tower of Babel? What happened to the languages? They were all separated because they couldn't speak each other's languages anymore. And as they're there together, they've experienced this matchless love of Jesus on the cross. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out and suddenly they're able to speak all of these different languages. They're able to communicate the gospel and Babylon is being reversed. And Babylon is to be reversed in your heart and my heart. It is to fall as we focus in on the love of Jesus. And then look at what it practically looks like in their lives. Don't miss this. Acts chapter 2 and verse 27. uh, Sorry, further down. So Peter gives this sermon and he tells them, Hey, you have crucified Jesus. And they're pricked to the heart. They're like, oh no, we're in big trouble. And then he says, look, just repent and be baptized. Turn away from from your sin. (laughs) And the gift's for you too. Come on in. God is that way. He's inclusive. He wants everybody to come in. And then it goes on to say what it looked like in their life. Verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. You know, I remember my my Greek professor. We were looking at this and he said, would you want early uh, New Testament Christianity. And we're like, yeah, that'd be amazing. Let's go back to the book of Acts. He's like, I don't think you want it. He said, I don't want it. Holding all things in common, just look at what it looks like. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. It wasn't a meritocracy. It wasn't based on the worthiness of the person. It was based on the need of the person. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And then you look over in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 says it this way, starting in verse uh, 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands, of houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had 
need. They said, let's hold everything in common. Let's make sure nobody has any lack. You see, this is what Jesus ends up summarizing the entire law as. There were times where he said, it's love God supremely, love your neighbor as yourself. But there's one time in Matthew 7 verse 12 where he actually says, look, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And this fulfills the law and the prophets. This is everything. Because John goes on to say, if you can't hate your brother and love God. So if you're loving your brother, you're also loving God because God created him and loves him. And so here you have this picture where they're holding everything in common. They sell everything. They're worried about the needs and wants of those around them. They're holding everything in common. This is what Christianity looks like. I don't know if you haven't realized that before, but this is what true Christianity looks like. And and don't let Babylon sell you any other lie. Because Christianity is looking out for the needs and the wants of everyone else around you. I love how it's summed up in the the book, Mount of Blessings. This is talking about the golden rule. It says the standard of the golden rule is the true standard of Christianity. Anything short of this is deception. A religion that leads men to place a low estimate upon human beings, whom Christ has esteemed of such value as to give himself for them, a religion that would lead us to be careless of human needs, sufferings, or rights. Have you ever seen a Christianity that's careless of human needs, of people's sufferings, of their rights? This is, she goes on to say, a spurious religion, a false religion. This is Antichrist. In sliding the claims of the poor, the suffering, and the sinful, we are proving ourselves traitors to Christ. It is because men take upon themselves the name of Christ while in life they deny his character that Christianity has so little power in the world. You see why Babylon's grabbing a hold of the state? Because she has lost the character of God. She has lost the love of God. And because she does not have selfless love for her neighbor, she's looking to enforce her dogma and her doctrines upon the world around her. The name of the Lord is blasphemed because of these things. Of the apostolic church in those bright days when the glory of the risen Christ shone upon them, it is written that no man said that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. Search heaven and earth, and there is no truth revealed more powerful than that which is made manifest in works of mercy to those who need our sympathy and aid. I'm just going to read that for you again because I've been, I'll tell you, I've actually taken time in our board meetings and we're going to look at it again this this tuesday because this this is huge the the language used here is 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 exactly what jesus is saying and it it's it's incredible it says search heaven and earth and there is no truth revealed more powerful than that which is made manifest in works of mercy to those who need our sympathy and aid that's what it's all about if you came looking for something else This is it. It's selfless love for our neighbor. That is the very thing that God is longing for in these last days. This is the truth as it is in Jesus. When those who profess the name of Christ shall practice the principles of the golden rule. When I come close to you and I listen and I say, what's going on in your life? When I'm concerned about your suffering, your needs, your wants, and I put those above my own needs. It says, when the church of Christ practices the principles of the golden rule, the same power will attend the gospel 
as in apostolic times. I want to see that. I want to see thousands flocking to Jesus. I want people attracted. I want people to see that God is love. Does God love unborn babies? You bet you he does. It's very clear that God loves unborn babies. He said, I knit you in the womb. There's nothing more precious than watching for, uh, watching those, we got to do a lot of them with the twins and watching the little babies grow and to know that there's something precious forming in your wife's womb. There's nothing so precious. And Christians are known for guarding the unborn and this is an important thing, is it not? God loves the unborn baby just as he loves the refugees. And just as he loves the Uyghur in China, the asylum seeker, the immigrant, the poor, the addicted, the homeless, the oppressed and the oppressor, the criminals and prisoners, and you and me. Is our Christianity known for that? Is that what people say? Oh yeah, Christians! They're concerned about the rights and needs of suffering humanity around them. Is that what I'm known for? And until it is, my Christianity will have very little power. And, and this isn't something where we're trying to, to whip ourselves into actions, but it's to re- remind ourselves that we are called to rest and the love of God, and to give us a picture of the beautiful, delightful experience that God is calling us to, because there is nothing more fulfilling than meeting the needs of a suffering world around us. A couple of weeks ago, I had a dream. During that dream, I was riding roller coasters. I haven't done this since high school, and, and these were really high roller coasters, and I was having so much fun on these roller coasters, and then and we got through most of the roller coasters that were in this section of the park when when I saw this train, and, and people said, if you get on this train, you'll get to the other section of the park. Kind of like I think it is with Disneyland and California Adventure or something. You know, you like travel to another part of the park. So we got on this train, and, and I'm, I'm thinking about the next roller coasters. I'm thinking about where we're headed. And, and as we're going along, I begin to look out the windows. And suddenly the scene was changed. We were on our way to the roller coasters, but it was as if we were suddenly in Asia. And as I looked on the street, I saw people laying there in the planters. I saw people beside the street. I saw people without shirts on. I saw ribs showing. I said, these are hungry people. They're starving. Let's do something. Let's stop the train. Let's do something. I began to cry in my dream. I said, look, we've got to do something. There's a world out there that's hurting. But you know, every person I went to on that train, they didn't care. They wanted to get to the next roller coaster. Friends, you and I have so much privilege here in America to live in the United States. We are gifted with so much and we cannot turn a blind eye to the needs of the world around us because Jesus loves them more than his own existence and he laid down his life for them. At Christmas, I told you about how my daughters were building that jar to be able to give money for, for, a, for Charlie. And, and they, they were so excited to give money so that Charlie could go to school this year. And Charlie is, is a part of, uh, it was adopted by the Avenue Southeast Asia Projects. You can look at them, ASAP.org, I believe it is, or Avenue Southeast Projects. 
And we got it. We finally got the card with the picture of Charlie on it. And when we got it, it gave us a description about Charlie. Charlie has grown up in a Buddhist family. And then it began to tell us how he's able now, because of the sponsorship, to attend this school in Thailand. And then it said, at his last school, Charlie was beaten almost every day. I thought to myself, there's children out there that that I could sponsor, that I could help in order that they might be able to not be beaten every day and go to school. Friends, we have first world problems here and we need to get our eyes on Jesus so that we can meet the needs of the world around us. There are suffering people out there who need us to give and to love and to serve. And this isn't to be a weight for you. This isn't to be a burden for you. It's an invitation to rest in the love of God and to let love spring up in your heart so that duty becomes delight and sacrifice pleasure. Take time to fix your eyes on the truth, on the law of God, which reveals the love of God, which is fully accomplished for you in Christ. Father, thank you for loving us with such an infinite, unending love that will never let us go. Father, I ask that you would lead us to rest in that love, to abide there, to to be absorbed by your love, to, to be able to think about nothing better, to fix our eyes on this love. Lord, I pray for anybody this morning who is burdened, who is weary. Their souls need relief, Lord. Would you Would you give them that invitation to come to you? Lord, if somebody hasn't come before, I pray they wouldn't walk away with here without knowing that they have said, yes, Jesus, I'm coming. Maybe we have before, but we need to more fully accept this yoke that makes duty delight and sacrifice pleasure. Lord, may we grab a hold of you. And Father, thank you that you give the invitation. You give this This invitation to come out of Babylon to your people. Lord, we pray that we would in our lives come out of Babylon. That we would live this beautiful law of love as you transform us from the inside out. Lord, would you lead us this week to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you for the matchless love of Jesus. Please fill us with joy in the reality that we already have your favor. We can never earn it. Help us to be channels for that love to this world. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.